everybody, it's Chris Marshall back once again with another edition of the Tomorrow's Tune-In Podcast. This is show number 15 for the month of December 2008. Today on the show, we have an interview with George Corey, who has a, well, a revised edition of his book from a couple years ago, The Extraordinary Works of Alan Moore, the Indispensable Edition this time around. George has authored a few books for us here at Tomorrow's, and we'll get into all of his work a little bit later on in the show. Not only does George talk about what is new and revised for this edition, but we also get into a little bit of Miracle Man and also the upcoming Watchmen movie as well. As far as the news goes here at Tomorrow's Publishing, you may have read online that John Morrow and Tomorrow's Publications have decided to cancel Right Now magazine with issue number 20, which is due out in February. This will conclude a six-year run with Danny Fingeroth as editor-in-chief of Right Now magazine. And John Morrow writes on his blog, a little excerpt here, We've decided to end Right Now magazine. I've got to say I'm really sorry to see it go. Danny Fingeroth has been absolutely professional and delightful to work with on it and always managed to teach me and his readers, based on the mail we get, something new about the intricacies of writing comic books and related fields. John writes more over at the Tomorrow's blog, and I encourage everybody to go over there and read the blog at tomorrows.com, and be sure to subscribe to it with your RSS reader. Right now, let's get to a few of the publications that are coming out in December 2008. First off, we've got Alter Ego number 82, which is a focus on the MLJ characters of yesteryear. This is expected to ship on December 10th will be 100 pages and be on sale and have a price of $6.95. Also out December 10th, we have the Modern Masters Volume 20, Kyle Baker, which is done by, of course, Eric Nolan Wethington, and also this month's featured guest, George Corey. This book is a 120-page trade paperback and will retail for $14.95. On Wednesday, December 17th, you can expect Brick Journal Volume 2, 90 pages for $8.95. Brick Journal is, of course, the ultimate resource for the LEGO enthusiasts. And this is actually the winter 2008 edition. Also coming out that day, we've got The Age of TV Heroes, a book we've talked about in the past. And it is also coming out from George Corey. This is the live-action adventures of your favorite comic book characters. The Age of TV Heroes examines the history of of live-action television adventures of everyone's favorite comic book heroes. It is a full-color hardcover. It will retail for $39.95. It's got a wonderful uh, cover by Alex Ross, and it is 192 pages. So a couple of different things from George this month, which is kind of exciting. And let's get to it right now. Here is my interview with George Corey talking about the extraordinary works of Alan Moore, the new Indispensable Edition. I'll catch you on the flip. All right. I'm here with George Corey, who is the editor of the, I guess it's the new version of the Extraordinary Works of Alan Moore, the Indispensable Edition. How you doing, George? I'm doing fine. Excellent. Uh, this book first came out in 2003, and now with the upcoming Watchmen movie, movie coming out, you've got a new edition of the book. 
before we get into the book itself, how did this project come about in the first place? This project comes out, uh, it comes from me just being a fan of Alan Moore's comics. Those, like, I don't think I would be reading comics if not for Alan Moore, you know, at this stage of the game. <laughs> and I just wanted, like, after I did uh, a book called Komoda, I was contemplating, you know, asking Alan about doing a book that sort of, you know, like, it, it sort of coincided with his 50th birthday. And I remember, like, you know, like, for, some, for my dad, like, turning 50 was a big thing. And it's sort of like a reflective age, like people are willing to look back at, you know, their life and stuff. And I asked Alan if he would be up to this, you know, like, and I would try to do it as easy as I can for him, or as I could for him, like, uh, that we would do a session, you know, every month or two, and sort of cover his whole life from the beginning to the present. And that's basically the book. We talk about everything, you know, like his, his life, his work, his marriage, marriages, <laughs> <laughs> his children, you know. His, his, all his books, the key ones are, are discussed in detail. So he is very I mean, receptive to this idea of a, a look back. Oh yeah, yeah. He was. He he didn't. The part of him wanted to do it. I like there were parts. There were sessions where he was a lot easier getting information from. Him. He, was, he was. He became more comfortable as the book progressed. But I think it was something he had fun doing. But it's not something he wants to do again. <laughs> But we had fun doing it when we did it, you know, like and discussing and looking back on some stuff that he hadn't really talked about, like some of his short stories for DC or some of the 2000 AD stories, like Halo Jones, that are just as good as anything he's ever written for, you know, DC or ABC. So, for those of us who are not familiar with this book, how is it broken up? This book is basically it's it's chronologically. Mm-hmm. But there's like there's, besides the interview, there's also like a little a lot of extras, like there's some tribute strips from some you know, of his, some of his collaborators over the years. And there's also, like, some scripts and short stories that people have rarely seen. And we, I think we also have uh, two short strips. We have two short strips in the book. So there's, there's a lot more than just, you know, this is a lot more than just your typical biography. I wanted to give people a good showcase of Alan's work as well. You also have a bunch of photographs of Alan Moore and uh There's photographs he provided yeah, there's photographs like childhood pictures and then Jose Villarubia provided like these chapter spread photos that basically divide every chapter. There's these great portraits that you know, nobody's ever taken these kind of photos of Alan. And they really give character to the book. So this thing is like when I was doing this book, when I and when we started in two thousand three I wanted it to be like the definitive ultimate Alan Moore book. If, like being an Alan Moore fan, I want something that I could count on as a reference book. You know, if I wanted, if I was reading a story and I just wanted to see what he was thinking about that particular story at the time, I wanted a book like this, you know, to go back every once in a while and figure out what he was thinking about and stuff. And it's helped me over the past, <laughs> which is kind of funny. It's my own book, but I, every once in a while I'll look just to see for reference. You know, if I read V for Vendetta again, I'll just read that segment again just to see what he had to say about it. Yeah, it's almost like a kind of like a DVD extra that you'd get with a, uh, a movie, right? Something like that. I tried to pack as much as I could in this thing. I think it, it's over a hundred thousand words too. So like, oh, there is a lot there. <laughs> <laughs> and how did Neil Gaiman get involved, and what is his role in this book? Neil's involvement is basically he actually, he his involvement's a little strange because he I've sort of known him from doing a couple of interviews in the past before even I before I even interviewed Alan Moore. I kind of knew Neil from doing some interviews and. He basically, at one point in his career, and before he became a big writer for DC, was going to do an Alan Moore book like this, 
like the cover, the Dave McKean cover comes from his book, the you know the the effort that never happened in in the late eighties, and it had been and he was the one who suggested that I I asked Dave McKean for permission to run the cover, because he really loved the cover and he also like so and I later got the idea of doing these tribute strips. How about how about getting every single key collaborator that Alan's ever worked with to do a tribute strip, or not a, basically a tribute strip to elaborate what the you know their about their relationship with Alan or about working with Alan. And that's like Neil basically, you know, Alan basically showed him how to write a comic book script. And Alan's very has been very key to his career. And and he teamed up with Buckingham and they did a little two page strip that basically starts all these little tribute strips are throughout the book. Like we have people like Brian Bolin and Dave Gibbons. I tried to get some guy you know, there's there's these guys like Eddie Campbell that basically held out and didn't want to do it. But I tried to get who I you know, everybody I, I could when I originally started the book. <laughs> I mean, everybody who's ever worked with Alan that I thought was vital, you know, like Dave Lloyd, he's in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else? Kevin O'Neill. You know, if, if you ever, if you think of the classics, you know, they should be in the book. Right. <laughs> uh, there's also a, a rare Alan Moore story called The Riddle of the Rakelsian Refuse. What is uh, this story all about? Well, this story is an environmental story that he did with uh, Michael T. Gilbert. It has, like, very... It, it's been seldom reprinted, but I think this is like the best presentation of it because there's also an introduction from Michael T. Gilbert. That's a new piece to for the book, in, you know, giving the backstory of how this all began. Which is, it's basically the story about like, uh, if I remember correctly, it's a story about <laughs> like garbage. It's like it's a very Swamp Thing story because it's it, it was written around the same time. It's about like sort of like this garbage that you know taking a life of its own. And nobody really notices it till it's a big monster, <laughs> till Mr. Monster has to confront it. And it, it's one of you know, every story. It's like there was, there was a point, like you know, every story that Alan Moore's ever written has something, you know, of some intrinsic value. And I think this is a good one for for our book. And it's also something different. Last time we had Pictopia, this time we have a different story. You know, you have to change things around a little bit. And then what about Alan Moore's work on Judge Dredd? You've got a session that on Judge that. Dredd script. I, it's his unseen Judge Dredd script. It's basically a script I think he wrote in 1979 when he was learning how to do comics. He had written, and he basically thought that it would be an easy sale to write a Judge Dredd script to, to, you know, for uh, 2000 AD. And, but it's basically his first sort of comic script, and, it's, and he wrote this script, and then his friend uh, Steve, mentor, uh, Steve Moore, who's also like a mentor to him, you know, would, would correct and tell you know, and, and look it over for him. I mean, it's, it's basically just his first comic book script. And it's the only time he's ever written Dread. He's never, he was supposed to do like a big Dread uh, Batman story in the 80s. Uh-huh. But it's kind of funny that, he, that he's like the biggest writer from the UK and he's never written a, a real, you know, published <laughs> Dread story. So I thought it would be cool to stick this in the book so people could see what his handle on Dread was. But it's also, it's, you know, it's a twofold thing. It's also like his first comic script. How is this book, the newly remastered edition, different from the one in 2003? This one's better. This one, <laughs> this one feels, it feels more definitive. To me, it's like I was able to go back and look at, you know, there's a lot of little things people aren't going to notice that I fix. It's just like there was a lot of little things, you know, you get into a deadline and, and you got to rush a, a certain point. Because I remember we had to get this out for San Diego in 2003. And there just came a time when you got, you, you want to work on these things forever, but there has to be a time when had to let go and you know publish it already <laughs> and and that sort of happened with, with this book last time and also like the last chapter i wasn't i wasn't really happy with how we ended because it just seemed to end it didn't seem 
finite, you know. And I, and I told that to Alan, like, it would be nice to do a new segment where, like, we talk about the last five years, but, but I also get to ask you some questions I wanted to ask you last time that I didn't kind of ask, because I think we, he was kind he might have been, I think after doing, like, a year's worth of interviews, you get kind of tired of an interviewer. <laughs> Burned out, yeah. So, yeah, so, but he was fresh, and it was, it was, you know, for me, it was a lot of fun to talk. It's always fun to, I always look forward to talking to him, because I always, I really stress out, like, doing these interviews with him. So I try to read everything I can, you know. Like whenever we would do these interview chapters, I I would read whatever was corresponding with that interview, uh, uh, you know that interview session. I would try to read it all and make notes and try to read comments that people have made online or articles that I have on file or whatever. You know, try to put everything I, I had into this thing, <laughs> <laughs> and I think it shows. Like we try to cover it. You know, just like there's certain things people aren't gonna find, but like. But I was trying to get everything I could across, and I think the new chapter just rounds it off better. And like, and and it gives it more of a contemporary. You know, it's like you you have more information about why he doesn't like movies and that sort of stuff. You know, what Lost Girls was really about, what he thinks about pornography. You know, like what what's going on in the future for him. You know, what he feels about the comic book industry right now at this moment. You know, uh-huh. and his take on even the Watchmen movie. It's all it's, it's all because these are the questions people always ask me. You know, it's like when you're on online you see people you know asking the same questions they can't quite figure out what exactly his problem is with certain things you know <laughs> and he can't hear you kind of lays it out for him you know well it seems he's like, always very honest you know. yeah it seems but, like articles like that when you when you read an article whether it be in the la times or wherever they always get the most negative quote that they can get from alan moore and that seems to be the headline which which there's more to it than just that one quote you know yeah. <laughs> well, that's what he tries to explain. There's a lot of backstory to what has happened. You know, a lot has led to his decision on these things, you know. And it's funny because even when From Hell came out, I mean, he didn't actively, you know, publicize it, but if people came to him, he would talk about it. He's, that's the kind of guy he is, you know. If you want to know about the book, he'll talk to you about the book. Yeah. He hasn't seen the movie, <laughs> so it's, it's, there's no point to asking him what he thought of Johnny Depp's performance or anything. You know. Well, let me. Let there's me, two separate works. Well, let me ask you this: So, is he flattered by Hollywood and movie makers by making From Hell and Watchmen and and uh, V for Vendetta? I mean, is he is he openly you know how does he take that when they come to him and say, Hey, we we should really this work is so good, let's make it into a movie. I think like what part of the problem is that he's had a lot of problems with the Hollywood stuff. You know, like a lot of it hasn't worked out. You know, especially for him, it just hasn't gone right. So like he's sort of he's sort of separated himself from it. Like he just doesn't want to know about it anymore. It's like as far as he's concerned, the original work is the book. You know. Yeah. Because there's just there's a part of us that like that seems to justify. You know, like if they make a movie out of it, then then it has to be a good comic. It's like what? <laughs> right. Like no, the important thing is the source material. You know, it's like if you want, if we really like Watchmen, you might want to read the book before you see the movie. You know, and see the differences. You know, see what the author really did. You know, would he like, be, as far as he's concerned. Yeah, sorry. That's okay. Would he be receptive to go the Frank Miller route and be actively involved as a producer in his own works? I think he wants to. If he does film, it would be something original. It wouldn't yeah. be something, uh, you know, that's a comic that he's already written. Okay. Because they become their own, you know, like, I don't know, like, the movie franchise things are completely different things from what he, you know, that's not his aesthetics, I think. It's like, he, he's into more of the art and storytelling of stuff, you know. Right. And but, it's sort of like, and when you do a movie, you got to compromise a lot of things, you know. 
but that's not. I don't know if it's necessarily art. Sometimes, you know. But but he knows that the movies will give him a you know get his name out to a broader audience. I mean, a lot more people are going to go see Watchmen than read Watchmen. And, yeah. <laughs> and maybe that'll maybe that'll get these people to to actually buy Watchmen the book and and then therefore have a, a snowball effect and go read his other material. I guess he would be flattered, but he doesn't. He doesn't really. He doesn't really you know, care. Like, yeah. yeah, it's like it's a separate thing. It's like he did his thing because it's like he has no control over what happens in the movie, and he never. You know, it's like and even when they say do, like they don't, you never really do. You know, <laughs> when it's, there's so much money riding on these things, you know, that they have to meet certain standards and stuff. You know, they got to test them and right and stuff. You know, it's a movie process of a complete, especially the big mainstream movies. It's a completely different beast. Well, yeah. Well, that's why I asked if he would want more involvement, like a, a Frank Miller or Neil Gaiman, in their own projects. That's you yeah. Know. But I don't. Those guys don't seem like Neil's been trying to do movies. It's like they haven't gotten done yet. Yeah. You know, like yeah. like his. I think he tried to direct once uh, his own, you know, feature length film. And that's where you could see it kind of stalled. You know, I'm sure it's gonna happen one day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, he was involved. But, but in, it's like, he was involved in Stardust pretty actively, wasn't he? I think he was. Yeah, but but do you really have full control when there's like producers and, no, and you know no. studio chiefs and and screenwriters and so many you know and right. actors, and actor producers. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like and and I think Alan when he does something, it's like that's the best thing about comics. Or that's at least that's how he explained it to me. It's like the best thing is the control you have. Like it's just him or him and the writer. You know, and the, they're crafting the story. You know, and, and they're the only guys, you know. Like, you don't have that with movies. You have a lot of hands, you know, and everybody has an opinion, you know. And then when your movie flops, then everybody is pretty quick to blame the source material or something. <laughs> <laughs> it was never there, you know. Well, let's Watchmen was perceived as, like, this unfilmable movie, you know, not too right. long ago. <laughs> yeah, it was, absolutely. Yeah, I was surprised when it got greenlit. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I mean, how are they going to pull this one off? But I guess, I guess they're going to try, that's for sure. Um, speaking of Watchmen, you've got a whole chapter devoted to Watchmen in your book. Uh, how does uh, more reflect back on on really the uh, the explosion of this one story? I mean, it's huge. Explosion. Well, you know, I mean, it's so big. I mean, this is hailed as the greatest thing of all. I mean, in so many circles. I think he sees it as like you know the positive and a negative. You know, it's like for, and for some reason it opened a lot of doors. I think we even say it like this in the interview. Right. It opened a lot of doors. He want you know like he never he never saw like that kind of celebrity where people would bring him to TV shows. I mean, he never perceived that this would ever happen to him just being a comic book writer. So it opened a lot of doors. But at the same time, it also opened a lot of doors he did, probably didn't want open. <laughs> <laughs> and it also ultimately it ultimately lost to him leaving DC. You know, because like. The real deal, like I think Dave Gibbons even mentioned in his book, was that they were supposed to, you know, once, like this leads to even to you, it's like they were supposed to do this trade, you know, there was supposed to be one printing of the collection, you know, or once Watchmen went out of print, you know, after a certain time, like the rights would have gone back to the creators, to Dave and, and Alan Moore. And, you know, and Watchmen actually became this phenomenon, and it, always, it was always going to be in print, you know. Yeah. Like, nobody ever foresaw a trade paperback market, you know. <laughs> right. Like, you usually just do a trade. In the old days, in the 80s, you used to do a trade, and then, like, every couple of years, it might go back to print, you know. But Watchmen was this beast, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he... he, he it, it was, it's a two-fold problem, you know. It's like, ultimately, it's his creation. You know, his, his creation was Dave Gibbons. But he basically has no control over Watchmen or say, you know. So, I don't know. It's, like, it's a tough thing to really answer. <laughs> At the end of the book, you've got a very big bibliography of 
Moore's works. Has that been updated through the 2008? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that was the hard. That was the hardest part of the update. <laughs> right. But uh, it's bigger. I think. I think the type might be a little smaller. <laughs> like I think it's like 20 pages. Is and it really? This time. Yeah, and this time it's over. I think it's over 20. But this time around, Alan actually looked at it, you know, and, and corrected some stuff that I got wrong the first time. Okay. And and I didn't have that last time because he was busy with the ABC stuff, and and he's also trying to leave ABC, so there was like a lot of he's going through a lot of things. But this time I was able to send it to him, and he looked it over and, and updated, and even added some notes, you know, some stuff that I, I didn't know. So like this is it's a lot more definitive, and I still think this, you know, it's like it's. As much as I, you know, at one point I actually owned most of this stuff. I, I, I just can't afford to buy everything he's ever done. That's how much stuff he's done. Right. <laughs> and, like, there's stuff there, you, like, no matter how hard you look for it, it's like you can't find it, you know. So I think we did, we did the first attempt at trying to do, because it's me and a few other guys that helped me out. We tried to do, like, the most definitive bibliography that's ever been done on Alan Moore. We looked at the other ones. We looked, we looked at eBay. You know, we looked at Amazon. We searched everywhere on Google. <laughs> see what book we might not have found, you know. Like, we went so far last time, you know, like there's even other authors named Alan Moore. I didn't know there were like two or three other ones. <laughs> <laughs> they so probably, we, do, they know, probably the, don't look like him, though. <laughs> yeah. But we, we, we did, you know, we, like people think, they, they take these things for granted, but like that thing was just an extra, you know, at the last minute. We weren't even going to do that for the, the first printing of the book. But it turned out to be the most work. And even like right now, I've spent like, I think four months just updating it, trying to, fact check and double checking and stuff like that because I wanted to make sure you know even the ones I weren't sure of I like I wrote them down for Alan it's like did you write this and he'd just write me a note back you know it's like maybe <laughs> do you know the reason behind the uh, the problems with the absolute black dossier and why it did why it did not include that one uh, record or recording of his he talks about that in this book he does uh, I think most of it, the absolute stuff has, it's the problems with the record. Like the, some of the DC editors thought it sounded like a song. I think he's mentioned this too in other interviews. Okay. That sounded like that. Is it Fireball? Is it FireX? Oh, sorry. Wait a but they thought it sounded like a song from a Jerry Anderson, one of those Jerry Anderson uh, puppet things. Okay. It, it sounded vaguely similar. And Alan says that's not the case. It's like, you know, it's like, it, it, it's a different song. It, it's in the similar genre. <laughs> right. But it's a different song, and like, and basically there was a lot of legal back and forth and stuff. You know, nothing really. It's funny, like how these things happen. Like ultimately, like it's not very interesting why it happened. Right. Like it's just something like, and, and the, at the end of the day, basically just affects the buyer. You know, like whoever brought that absolute edition really didn't get anything. <laughs> well, no, it, it was <laughs> just, just you know, not, you know me. I mean, I'm a trade guy, and it just seems funny because that book was you know, talked about, and then it was solicited, then it was delayed for a year, and then it seems like in, in what, a span of 14 months, they brought out uh, the hardcover with two different covers, uh, a trade paperback, and then the Absolute Edition. And it just well, seems, well, you know... The, the, the Black Dossier overall was like a... Like, he, he regards that as the best league that yeah. so far, you know. And, and... But the legal back and forth on it was just a nightmare. And because it, it be, being... Maybe because it was his last project with DC, <laughs> there was just like a lot of back and forth. At one point, DC had approved it, and then they took it back. It's like we need, you know, we need to check it one more time. Right. And that's and that sort of stuff that didn't really, you know, endear him to to what was going on. You know, he just wanted to get it done, you know, at, at a certain point. 
and and it's just like it's funny. Like, there's a lot of backstory to what happened in the Black Dogs here, and it just he was you know he was just right now he's happier than ever because he's done with like Wildstorm and DC and all that sort of stuff. And, and he's, he's working on you know his, his own books. He's moving the league over to Top Shelf, correct? Yes, I think the first book comes out. Uh, Century comes out next year. Oh, good, good. That'll be good to have. And I think he's already drawn like I think the first book is done because I think it's three hardcovers right or three trades but I think the first edition is done so that should be out next year excellent and then uh, you does uh, your book covers a little bit on Miracle Man right yes and uh, well do you think that'll ever get resolved that this whole thing uh, it's gotten more complicated <laughs> it, no, it has. It seems you know. It seems like every month or so, a new article springs up about this, and it just seems to get more involved and more lawsuits. And you know, I, I personally, as a comic book fan, would love to have it just all resolved because when they, if whoever gets the rights, maybe they can all get the rights and somehow split it up in percentages. But they, they, I hope they realize that they're all going to make a ton of money on a reprint project. I mean, at least that's they that's from my been, perspective, they, though. I think the, the the real value in Miracle Man, besides the, the reprinting, might actually be like the potential for a movie and stuff. Like this, is, I think. Okay. Like, have you ever seen The Matrix Three? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like parts of that, like there's parts of that straight out of like the first couple of stories from Miracle Man, you know, Marvel Man. And and I think the the potential there's money to be made. I think that's what's sort of slowed down uh-huh. the whole process. You know, it's like, and it's an impossible book to like. You know, it's impossible to settle who owns what since most. Realistically, like what what Alan wanted to do was like you know whoever wrote the stories owns the stories and whoever did the art owns that particular art no matter who it is you know it's like if Alan Davis drew his stories he owns those stories yeah you know? Gary Leach is entitled to his stories so it presents like a, and then like a, one of the problems also is that a lot of these guys aren't on the same page you know there's never been one person that just like unified you know and then you have like we go back and forth between Todd McFarlane and you know Gaiman or Dead right. Skin and other parties you know so. It just complicates things. <laughs> I just think it's funny so, because it's, there's... there's probably have to have... Money can solve anything, they say sometimes, right? Well, so, no, money can solve every, anything. But in the meantime, I mean, there's money to be made in the future. But in the meantime, they're not making any money on this. It's just a bunch of legal hassle. And well, that's what ta- Miracle Man has never made any money, I think, for anybody that's invo- been involved with it. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is the amazing part. It's like, I don't think... I'll, I'll, you know, nobody ever got rich off... Doing a you know a Miracle Man comic, oh boy, which is kind of ironic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, but, I guess... but you know, it'll happen sooner or later. It'll happen. It's like every, it's like we get. It's, I don't know. In this kind of era that we live in, it's like we. It always seems like things do work out eventually. Yeah. It's like, it's like even the Guns N' Roses album is finally coming out. So I know. Can, happen, can you, you believe? Know? I might go buy it on Sunday. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if I will or not though. <laughs> things can't happen the, the impossible can't happen you know and and, the, and there's a lot of like you know you have Neil Gaiman is a real smart guy he sooner or later you know when he uh, he'll focus on it and he'll get done you know, or Neil or Todd or they have to work out something you know yeah well if the police can get back together and the Eagles get back together and Chinese democracy can come out anything can happen I guess <laughs> exactly it's like, it's, it's, it's like we thought Star Wars was over with Return of the Jedi you know <laughs> Or Jar Jar Banks. <laughs> yeah, it's like we didn't know we were we we're gonna get Jar Jar Banks and that's right. coins and all that stuff. <laughs> like, and if the, even the Beatles could get back together, you know, 
and they, Ari, they did know. in some respect, didn't they? So Miracle Man can't happen, you know. Despite what what everybody says, you know, I, I have a feeling that'll happen sooner or later. And it's all out there, you know. This is the scary part. It's like the tra- the comics are out there. They're, they're not that expensive, you know. Except for fifteen. <laughs> yeah. For the most part, you can get the rest of them. You know, if you look really hard, you can get them for a couple of bucks. Well, and if you look really hard, you can get digital copies legally too on online too. I mean, it's all out there. But I mean, yeah, to, have I mean a, to have a nice, you know, oversized presentation of this stuff would would just be great. You know, it really would. It'll happen someday. Yeah. Well, your book, The Extraordinary Works of Alan Moore, the Indispensable Edition, I love that title, too, the Indispensable Edition, is due We wanted out... to give it, like, a, one of those... <laughs> sorry, we wanted to give it, like, one of those snazzy, like, you know, like, everything's a special edition this or edition that. Oh, yeah. it's snazzy. Hey, well, oh, one more thing. Um, let's talk about the cover real quick from uh, Dave McKean. Yeah, the cover was originally done for, like, Neil Gaiman's book in the 80s, and then... Uh, before we we went to print in 2003, Dave updated it with some more artifacts from Alan's career to you know make it more contemporary and stuff. I I love this cover. Like like there was talk of changing it. It's like no way. This cover is part of this book. <laughs> like to me, Dave McKean's one of my you know, he's one of my favorite artists. Yeah, it's a really neat cover. Like him. Well, we will look for this book coming out uh, scheduled to come out on Wednesday, December 10th. It's 240 pages, a soft cover, and available for 29.95. George, where can people find you on the internets? Uh, they can find me through the Tomorrow site, or they can find me through like the comic book resource article. Uh, these articles I write on comic book resources called Pop. You know, they can. I'm usually there every couple of weeks or every two weeks <laughs> with a new column on Sunday or Monday. Excellent, George. Thanks for uh, being with us today. All right. Thank you, Chris. I want to thank George for coming on the show today. It was a real pleasure talking to him, and he is always welcome to come back on the Tomorrow's TuneIn Podcast in the future. Again, my name is Chris Marshall, and you can reach me at CollectedComicsLibrary at gmail.com. And in fact, you can come by my podcast, which is the Collected Comics Library, where I talk about all sorts of collected editions, trade paperbacks, and hardcovers. So if you're into that sort of thing, and I know you probably are, please come by and check out my personal site. And be sure to come by Tomorrows.com to check out all the latest and greatest we offer. We're always having sales on many of our merchandise that we have over there. And be sure, like I said at the beginning of the show, to come by and subscribe to the blogs that we have, not only the TuneIn blog, but also John Morrow's personal blog. It's a great resource for all things happening here at Tomorrow's. And if you get a chance, hey, come by the iTunes Music Store and their podcast section and leave us an iTunes review. Always appreciate those. So until next month, everybody, hey, go out and have a safe and wonderful holiday season. Thank you very much.